Let me begin, first of all, by saying welcome again now, not only to those of you who are here in our traditional sanctuary, but welcome especially to those of you who are joining us right now in our contemporary service and also via broadcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're all here together, able to learn from God's Word together and grow together as a church family, even if we can't all be in the same place at the same time. And speaking of learning from God's Word together, if you don't have a Bible with you or don't have a Bible on your phone or tablet that you're going to be using right now, if you'd like to follow along with the Bible passages that we are learning from today, our ushers are going to be coming up the aisles in both of our worship venues with Bibles. Please feel free to wave at them or borrow a Bible from them somehow, and you can just stick it on the shelf in the back of either of our worship venues after the worship service today. Today we are going to be talking about something that is both incredibly simple and also deep and full of mystery. It is, on the one hand, so simple that I think it's able to be summed up in three relatively short, easy words, but also so deep and full of mystery that any of us could spend the rest of our lives trying to learn this lesson. What I want to talk to you about today from the passage that we read in our worship services together is I want to talk to you about how it is that we form our picture of God. I want to talk to you about our imagination of who God is and what difference it makes when we get our picture of God from Jesus. But before we get there, let me back up for a minute. There was a study that was done about five years ago by Baylor University in Texas. And Baylor did a study. They did lots of surveying and polling. It was a social science study. They talked to people all over the United States. And they found that people in the U.S., in this culture here in the U.S., had about four different pictures of God. They were trying to understand how people formed their imagination of God or, or what imaginations of God had been formed. And they found that people all across the U.S. tended to think of God primarily in one of four ways. Some of us think mostly of God, or our picture of God is mostly the picture of an authoritarian God, and that's the word they used, authoritarian. Our picture of God is a God who is strong and active and in charge and full of authority and using his authority to run the events of the world responding to the events of human history, responding to goodness with blessing, responding to evil with punishment. But for some of us, our picture of God is predominantly formed by our image of his authority and his authoritative running of the world. They found that some of us think of God or have a picture of God that is mostly the picture of a benevolent God. That's the word they use. Benevolent means goodwill. A picture of a God of goodwill who is basically good and kind and maybe even nice, and looking to pour out blessing and where, wherever possible to as many people as possible. Some of us think of God in a primarily benevolent or goodwill sort of way. They found that some of us, in the third way, have a picture of God that is mostly the picture of a critical God. Maybe many of you have a picture of a critical God, a God who sits at some distance but close enough to see what you're doing wrong. <laughs> and is waiting to see how you're going to screw up now, and then maybe ready to press the smite button on his cosmic keyboard when you do. The fourth picture of God that they found that many Americans hold is a picture of God that is mostly distant. Not that God isn't real. God is really there, but not really very involved with the day-to-day -day operations of his world. God is primarily distant. Authoritarian, benevolent, critical, and distant. Now, no doubt as I was describing those, some of you resonated with some of those categories more than others. Maybe some of you were already a step ahead of me here and you were thinking, wait a minute, I believe more than one of those things. 
And their study wasn't meant to say that these pictures can't go together at all or aren't blended in many of our experience, but that most of us have a picture of God that is predominantly, that starts with, or is centrally about one of these things. And they didn't do anything to try to figure out how people form their pictures of God, but they did do some further study to see how many people this is and and what effect does it have. Interestingly enough, it's not exactly 25% per category, but it's roughly about a quarter, roughly about a quarter of Americans hold each one of these four ideas. And these four ideas or images of God shape a lot of things in our life, as, as you might imagine. They shape our emotions, some of our psychological dispositions, the way that we form relationships, the opinions that we hold about social issues, public policy, politics, Many of these things are shaped strongly by our imagination of God. As you might already imagine, some of these pictures of God might fill you with fear or fill you with inspiration. They might fill you with courage and motivation, or they might fill you with demotivation. Some of these pictures of God might draw you closer to God. Some of these pictures of God might drive you farther away from God. And we could ask ourselves which one of these pictures is most true or most accurate, or we could ask ourselves which of these pictures of God has the best results, which one of them has the best effects. But honestly, if we had this conversation in a broad audience, we would probably disagree about how to figure out which one is true or accurate or what the best effects really are, and so that wouldn't really get us very far. It's an interesting situation in which we find ourselves. What I want to tell you this morning is, first of all, We aren't the first people to be in this situation. I imagine this has been true throughout much of history, and I'm quite certain it's true all around the world. In fact, we can tell from our Bible reading this morning and from a little bit of a few other readings I want to share with you that this was very much the situation in Jesus' world. And I want to tell you this morning, I want to share with you that I think Jesus had something very important to say about this that I think all of us can find very interesting. We're going to read from Luke chapter 14 and 15 this morning. If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to look at Luke chapter 14 first. It's on page 1530 of our Quest Bibles. That makes it easier to find. So you can find that spot, but let me set a little context for you before we review that passage. One of the most characteristic and famous features of Jesus' life is that he was in frequent conflict with the Pharisees. Even people who don't know much about Jesus at all sometimes know that the Pharisees were anti-Jesus. And then in some ways, Jesus was anti-Pharisee, although I don't think he was anti-the people, but their ideas and philosophy. And at the the, the flashpoint of this conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees were the people with whom Jesus chose to spend his time, and especially the people with whom Jesus chose to take his meals. Jesus was forever spending time and inviting to his dinner table people that the Pharisees thought did not belong in the presence of somebody who claimed to be a man of God in some way or another. He was inviting and welcoming famously tax collectors, whom people in the ancient world didn't only hate because they took their money, but because they took their money dishonestly, because they extorted them, because most of all they were in cahoots and they cohorted and they collaborated with the hated Roman overlords who were oppressing them and hurting their people and terrifying their nation. The tax collectors were some of the lowest of the low. They were traitors. Jesus invited them to dinner. Jesus famously hung out with prostitutes and other openly sinful people, and this drove the Pharisees bananas. They just thought this could not be okay. And at the heart of this conflict is a picture of God conflict. It's it's an imagination of God conflict. This, This might surprise some of you. I think I've said this actually some Sundays before, but the Pharisees were not just generally bad people. 
They were not just like genetically evil, mean-spirited people. The Pharisees were a group of people who cared a lot about God. They really wanted to honor God and serve God, but they had a particular picture of God. Their picture of God was predominantly that of a rule giver. They imagined that God gave a lot of rules. And this picture of God was reinforced for them by the reading of the Bible, which at that time was just the Old Testament. That's what Bible they had at that point. And there are a lot of rules in the Old Testament. There are a lot. There are many, 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 many other things in the Old Testament. But there are also a lot of rules. And when the Pharisees read the Bible, they found a lot of rules. And they said, well, God, if you said jump, I want to ask how high. Because all I want to do is know that when I jump, you're pleased with it. So what's the rule? Teach me how to obey it. But the Pharisees didn't only want to make sure they obeyed God. They wanted to make sure everybody obeyed God, or at least their fellow Jewish people. And they would teach other Jewish people that when you obey God, when you obey his rules, and when you obey them in the right way, then God will be pleased with you. Then God will smile on you. Then you'll be welcomed onto the inside of the community of God's people, and together as a community of rule-obeying people, God will finally pour out his blessing on us. Maybe he'll even bless our nation. Maybe he'll even set us free from these terrible Romans who are oppressing us. Maybe the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven will come. Of course, Jesus announced that it was coming. The Pharisees said, maybe God will bring it here if only we will together obey his rules correctly. And so you can be in the people of God if you obey all the right rules. But if you are not going to be a rule obeyer, then we're going to keep you on the outside lest you pollute or violate the people of God and we don't get to experience the blessing of God because you're breaking the rules. Jesus gave these guys migraines. He gave them fits because he was continually welcoming to the inside of God's people, to a space as intimate as his own dinner table. Think about the people that you are willing to or that you show in practice that you invite to eat at your table in your house. I don't know how wide of a circle that is. It might not be very wide. Jesus was continually inviting to his own table the very people the Pharisees were trying to keep out because they weren't obeying the right rules. But this was not just a rules conflict. This did not just give the Pharisees headaches and keep them up at night because Jesus was breaking their rules. And Jesus knew this. He knew what was at stake. And so when he was in conflict with the Pharisees, Jesus did not say to them, look, you've just got the wrong rule. I've got a better rule. He did not say to the Pharisees, look, you're just mean and I'm just nice. When they challenged him on this, he challenged their picture of God. He challenged their imagination of who God was. Let me show you now, again, review with you how he did this. Let's take a look at the passage that we read together today. It's Luke chapter 14. It's in your Quest Bibles on page 30. I want to review the first four verses with you, Luke 14, 1 through 4. It says that one Sabbath day, and by the way, the Sabbath is a day that was governed by a whole lot of rules. This is a rule-rich environment that we're entering here. And to make the rule-rich environment even sharper, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, there were a lot of rules about who you could eat with and how you could eat on the Sabbath day. He was being carefully watched. I imagine he was. There in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. I don't just wonder how the man who was hosting this meal let this guy in. Maybe they were setting Jesus up, and Jesus took the bait. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful, is it in accordance with the rules to heal, to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Jesus put the Pharisees in this very awkward position. He called their bluff, if you will. He said, which is it that is more important to the heart of God? Well, in your picture of God, what's the right thing to do here? Is it to honor the rules that you believe are so important to your picture of God the rule giver, or is it this person right here who is suffering? Which one of those matters in your picture of God? And the Pharisees realized the sticky wicket they were caught in, and so they remained silent. Jesus healed the man and sent him on his way. Because the Pharisees said nothing, a little bit later in the chapter, Jesus told the story. Jesus did a lot of his teaching by provoking people's imagination by telling stories. So he told a story. He said, once upon a time, there was a man who gave a great banquet. And you should know that in first century Jewish storytelling tradition, the guy who throws the great banquet is God. And the banquet is a symbol for the salvation of God, for the goodness and the presence and the, and the celebration of God, for the, for the kingdom of heaven coming to God's people. God, a man, is throwing a great banquet. And he invites the usual suspects. He sends his servants out to invite his friends. But his friends aren't that excited about the banquet that he is throwing. In Jesus' story, these guys have other things to do, family affairs to attend to, business affairs to attend to. So they're not rushing into the banquet this guy is throwing. So the guy tells his servants, fine, go invite other people. Go out and find the, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the poor, who are, by the way, represent the very people the Pharisees would have been keeping out of the temple, out of the presence of God. And if we're being honest with ourselves, it's not a bad description of people who are still excluded from much of our society. The guy throws the great banquet and says, bring them in. Bring them all in. And his servants say, we've done it. We invited everybody you said to. There's still more room at the party. And he says, great, go out the roads, go out the lanes, go out the country roads to the villages, to the farmers, to everybody outside, which, who, by the way, again, are the people who are generally not very educated by the Pharisees to do the holy things the Pharisees want them to do. But he says, go out there into those areas and invite them to my party. They all come in. And then at the end of the story, Jesus codes a little warning into the story. And the master of the banquet who's throwing the party says to his servants in this little parable, those people I invited first, they're never even going to get to come. The seats are filling up fast. They'll never even taste my banquet. And he puts this little coded warning or barb in there to warn the Pharisees that they need a new vision of God. They need to start seeing God differently. But there they are silent, not sure what to make of this. And so Jesus does not give up. He keeps on going. He reaches right inside their headaches and he turns up the tension level a little bit higher on their picture of God conflict. At the beginning of Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles open, you can just turn a page or two to Luke chapter 15. It's 1532 in your quest Bibles. This is what it says there after Jesus tells some of these stories. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I imagine they were, don't you? I mean, this is probably the first good news they've heard in a long time. You ever notice how it's sometimes people who aren't tempted to imagine that their life is just fine without God, who are ready to turn to God. And those of us who have numbed ourselves with other things are less eager to gather around Jesus. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He eats with them. So Jesus tells some more stories. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three little stories, two little stories, one longer story, some of his most famous stories, some of my favorite stories, all of them are picture of God's stories. In the first story, Jesus says, there was a shepherd, and this shepherd had a hundred sheep. And by the way, in case you're wondering, 
in first century Jewish storytelling tradition, do you know who the shepherd usually is? A shepherd is a picture of God. Jesus is telling a picture of God's story. There's a shepherd. He brings all 100 sheep back in the sheepfold, and he counts them. There's 99 of them. There's a sheep missing. And this shepherd does not say to himself, ah, I got 99. 99% is not so bad. He says, I'm missing one of my sheep. He goes out, imagine over hills and down in the valleys, looking behind trees until he finds his missing sheep. He is out there looking for the sheep. When he finds it, he brings that sheep back. I don't know. Maybe he carried the sheep. I'm imagining now. Maybe the reason the sheep didn't come back is because it was hurt. Sometimes getting lost hurts. So he goes out there and he gets the sheep, and somehow he brings the sheep back to the sheep pen, and he brings it in. And what does the shepherd not do? The shepherd does not go, okay, good, day's work done, I can sleep now. shepherd doesn't take it easy. He celebrates. He rejoices. His lost sheep is found. He goes out to his neighbors, who I imagine don't live very close by because it takes a lot of space to pasture sheep, right? He goes and finds these neighbors wherever they are, and he says, come and rejoice with me. Aren't you as happy as I am that my lost sheep has been found? I wonder what those Pharisees are thinking when Jesus tells a story. He invites his neighbors to come and rejoice with me, and he throws maybe a banquet for all of them again. Just as we're hearing the story, I just want to say, maybe there are some of you who are here today who feel like you have been a lost sheep at one time or another. Maybe, and maybe it's many of us who feel like there's some lost sheep in us, in you, right now. If that is you, I want you to hear this. I believe that Jesus wants you to hear this. God goes looking for lost sheep, and he rejoices when lost sheep come home, and he invites other people to rejoice with him. It brings joy to the heart of God when lost sheep come home. And Jesus told another story. He wasn't done yet. He said there was a woman who lost a coin. Now, don't think like nickel or quarter right now, okay? you got to think valuable, treasured coin. This might have been her, in ancient days, this might have been her dowry. Maybe it was her life savings. There was a lot staked on this coin, and it's gone. She loses a coin. So what does she do? She lights a lamp, because it must be the middle of the night when she realizes that it's gone. She's not going to go to bed and say, it'll probably turn up in the morning. No way. i got to find my lost coin now. So she lights a lamp in the middle of the night, and she cleans the house. She starts sweeping the whole floor, and she finds her lost coin. And what does she not do? She doesn't go back to bed, blow the lamp out, and go to sleep. Go, finally, my heart is calm. I go to sleep now. Uh -uh. She goes in the middle of the night and wakes up her neighbors and says, come rejoice with me. I don't know, maybe she threw a banquet and she invited them to come and celebrate with her. Jesus says, God is like this. This is what God is like. Maybe some of you feel like, I've been that lost coin. Maybe some of you are thinking, I'm kind of, I'm kind of lost coin. I'm kind of in a lost coin phase of my life right now. If that's you, I want you to hear this. And I believe that Jesus wants you to hear this. God is like that woman. God thinks you're a treasure. God thinks you're a treasure valuable enough to go looking for, to go find, to get up in the middle of the night, to not rest as long as you are missing. And then to invite others into his joy to rejoice with him when you are found. Jesus says, God is like this. And then in the third story, Jesus tells the mother of all stories. Jesus tells my favorite story. Maybe one of them, maybe the most famous parable or story that Jesus ever told. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son. I love this story so much, I go on about it forever. A few years ago, I preached on this parable for three weeks. I won't do that right now. But Jesus said there was a father who had two sons. You know who the father is supposed to be in the story by now? 
Jesus, as a father, had two sons, and one of those sons ran away. We're not talking about sheep anymore. We're not talking about coins, precious and valuable as those things already were. This is a child of his own house. And one of his sons got together a bunch of the property from the house, and he took off with it. He ran away. He wandered. And while he was gone, he hit rock bottom. His life was wrecked. Things went way sideways. They went way wrong. He was in a lot of pain. He was in enough pain to go, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Maybe I should turn back to the father now and go home. And he goes home. And do you know what happens to the father when the wandering son comes home? The father is overcome with joy. He is overcome with embarrassing amounts of joy. And he throws a banquet. And he says, come celebrate with me. He invites the whole household, all the servants of the house, the other siblings, whether they want to come in or not, no matter what their attitude is, the attitude of God is a response of joy. The father says, my son has come home again. Maybe you feel like you have been the wandering son or daughter at some point. Maybe you feel like right now there's wandering son or daughter in you. If that's the case, I want you to hear this. And I truly believe that Jesus wants you to hear this. When you return home, the father experiences joy. It, the father's heartbroken when you're gone. And when you come home, it's not anger. It's not shame. It's not vindictiveness. It's not I told you so's. It's not finger pointing. It's joy. The heart of the father experiences embarrassing amounts of joy when his lost sons and daughters come home again. And Jesus says he threw a banquet and he invited everybody to come into it and that God is like this. Jesus is telling the Pharisees picture of God stories. He wants to give the Pharisees a better vision of God. He wants to give us a better vision of God. But let me just take this one level deeper with you because these aren't even just stories of God as if I could even say just stories of God. These aren't even just stories of God. But remember with me for a moment how these stories got told in the first place. What was the context that gave rise to Jesus telling these stories? It was what Jesus was doing. Jesus is telling stories that explain his own actions, his own abundant generosity, his incredible practice of love and inclusion and grace into the people of God. It's Jesus who was looking for lost sheep, isn't it? It's Jesus who's treasuring lost treasures. It's Jesus who's throwing banquets, who's hosting dinner parties when the wandering lost children come home again. Jesus isn't just giving us pictures of God as if it's like a new thought experiment. Hey, try this. Imagine that God is like this story and see how that works for you. We don't just have God in stories. We have God in the flesh. We have God in the person of Jesus. And that's why I said at the beginning that this lesson that we're learning from the scriptures today is something that's so simple that you could learn it in three little words. If you want to know what God is like, come to Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, come to Jesus because in Jesus, God has come to you. It's that simple. If you want to, you could think of three words as look at Jesus or God is Jesus. Come to Jesus. But when you do that, then you will be taking a step into a journey that will do nothing but for the rest of your life take you deeper and higher into the character and the identity 
in the presence of God because Jesus cannot be reduced. Jesus cannot be reduced to some idea or principle or formula. No matter how much modern-day followers of Jesus have tried to do this to contain him and reduce him, he will not be reduced. Jesus cannot be reduced to authoritarian, benevolent, critical, or distant. He cannot be reduced to any one concept because he is the living Lord of heaven and earth, and we are invited to know God in him. I invite you today, whatever your picture of God is, whatever effect that it has had on your life, maybe some of them blessing, maybe some of them not, I want to invite you to know God. I want to invite you to know God in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that there's two parts to that journey that I'd like to invite you into in an active response. On the one hand, coming to know God in Jesus means finding out who Jesus was. On the other hand, it means finding out who Jesus is. We begin by finding out who Jesus was. And the best way to do that is to read the stories of Jesus that are in this book, that are especially in the gospel stories of his life. Maybe some of you have here in this Advent series that we're sharing been using our Advent devotional, and it it leads us day by day through one more chapter in the gospel of Luke. We've been doing this in our house. We actually missed Friday night this week because we were out late and the kids fell asleep on the way home. And so we read two chapters last night. I love how the chapters match up with the days. Yesterday was December 7th, so we read Luke 7. So if you haven't done it yet, today's the 8th. Luke 8 is a great place to start. It's just reading the stories of Jesus' life. I'm also doing this with another group of guys that I've been getting together with lately, three guys who were baptized in the lake this summer, and we celebrated that. And the four of us have been meeting every other Monday, just helping each other grow in our relationship with God and our discipleship to Jesus. We've been reading one segment of the Gospel of Luke again, coincidentally, every day. And we kind of email each other throughout, and every other Monday we get together. I want to invite you to be reading the stories of Jesus' life. And after you do that plenty of times, you can read the Old Testament too and find out, read the stuff that Jesus was reading. That fills me up when I do that too. Read the other stuff in the New Testament, find out what Jesus kept doing in other people's lives. I want to invite you to read the stories of Jesus' life, to find out what he did and what he taught and how he handled conflict and how he formed relationships and who he had dinner with. I want to invite you to come to know who Jesus was And I just will tell you, I want to invite you out of my own experience and out of the testimony of other followers of Jesus that I am utterly convinced that your life will be richer, deeper, and closer to God if you do this than if you don't do this. But I don't only want to invite you to know who Jesus was. I want to invite you to come to know God and who Jesus is. Because, you know, I've read a lot of other biographies. I've read biographies of presidents and athletes and other influential people. I enjoy that. I learn from those things. But those people all have one thing in common. They're all dead or they're going to be soon. And their story, as far as I know it, is basically over. But Jesus is not dead. And his story is definitely not over. It's still being written in the world today and written in your life and mine. I want to invite you to come to know Jesus now. And you can do that in all kinds of different ways. I want to invite you to know Jesus spiritually in prayer, simply to say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want you to speak into my life. I want to be able to talk to you. I want to know God. I want to give you my life and follow you and come to know you. I want to invite you to come to know who Jesus is spiritually. You can come to know Jesus also in obedience and practice and loving your neighbor. It's amazing how we come to see Jesus in the service of others. Jesus has said elsewhere, as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, so you've done it to me. You see Jesus in the face of those whom you serve. Jesus has also said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, and there am I in the midst of them. We come to know Jesus in one another, in praying together, and serving together, and generally sharing the ups and downs of life with God with one another. I want, to come, I want to invite you to come to know God 
in Jesus and the stories of his life and the stories that he continues to write in your life. Because we've all got pictures of God. We've all got imaginations of God. Most of us don't even know where they come from. A lot of them aren't really doing us a lot of good. But the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of our Savior Jesus Christ is that we know God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I'd like, you to, I'd like to invite you to know God and his grace and his power, to know a God who cannot be contained or constrained by the study of any university or boiled down into any four categories, but to the living spirit of God who loves you, who treasures you, who calls you home and has life for you, real life now and forever. Let's begin by turning our hearts to God in prayer. Good and gracious God, we love you. We know who you are because we know Jesus. God, I pray by your spirit you would work in our hearts, that you would touch the imaginations of you that we have, particularly those that don't come from you, those that we've picked up somewhere else along the way. And God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you as you are, as you have come to us and made yourself known to us and revealed yourself in Jesus. And God, I pray that you would call us closer to you, that you would call us forward as disciples of Jesus to fill us with grace and courage, to fill us with peace and your very own presence. We live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.